so as I mentioned, I want to talk about, uh, so I give a little backdrop to what I'm talking about. I'm in the middle of uh, teaching at this class the five spiritual faculties. So uh, there are one of the teachings of the Buddha gave that talk about how we bring different qualities of our being into harmony that support our spiritual practice. Um, as you may know, the Buddha gave many different teachings on many different qualities that are useful on our journey. And this is one particularly uh, useful uh, system uh, that's useful both for meditation but also for the rest of our lives. So um, I started some weeks ago or months ago now talking about faith, which is really about having trust in one's own capacity to awaken, having faith in one's capacity in one's ability to, to know the truth. Um, that uh, gives rise to energy and to effort, which is what I'm going to talk about tonight. And effort, effort balanced with mindfulness, which is a third quality, leads to concentration, deepening the depth of awareness, which we bring to bear on our experience, which supports insight and wisdom, the fifth quality. So that's sort of the backdrop. Um, <clears throat> As anybody, as anybody who's uh, tried to meditate or practice, cultivate qualities of the heart and mind, uh, you know that it takes a lot of work, it takes a lot of effort. It doesn't just happen by itself. Oh, I'll get enlightened today. Hmm, sit under a tree and maybe it'll happen for me. No, it doesn't happen like that. It's, it's a very, requires a lot of patience and persistence, effort, dedication, and it requires a certain uh, fortitude and a sort of longitudinal uh, perseverance. And as life is, presents its challenges and its ups and downs, you know, we need a lot of uh, steadiness and persistence to sh- keep showing up, to meet and to work with the challenges in our lives, in ourselves, in our relationships and to meet the truth of what is, which isn't necessarily so easy or pleasing to our egos. So um, maybe you'll relate to this. It says, Dear Lord, so far it has been a good day. I haven't lost my temper, shouted at anybody, or forgot anything. Amazingly, I have not told any lies or been conceited or selfish, nor have I done any harm. I haven't smoked or even had a drink. Now, if you please, I must get on with my day, but first I must get out of bed this morning. (laughs) So it's all pretty good, you know, when we're sitting in bed, you know. Balanced effort, wise, clear, maybe. So for those of you familiar with the Buddha's life story, you'll know that he um, also um, was a human being like us um, and also put tremendous effort and uh, dedication into his own spiritual practice to understand himself, to understand this human dilemma, this, this weird thing called life and birth and death and being human. And he wanted to find the causes of suffering and the causes of freedom and happiness. He wanted to find that which was, he could find that in himself which allowed him to be at peace no matter what was happening in this, in this world, in this life. Anybody found that? 
the unshakable, undeliverable peace of Nibbana, where we can be at ease and at peace no matter what's happening. It's a very profound state of awakening. And that didn't happen overnight. He spent many years practicing various ascetic practices and meditation practice practices. And there's a beautiful story of when he, um, at the end of that practice period, he sat under the Bodhi tree um, and said, I will not get up from this meditation seat until I've attained full awakening. How many of you sit on your cushion in the morning and say, I am not going to get up from this cushion (laughs) until I attain full enlightenment? (laughs) We might be there a long time. (laughs) So there was a very kind of single-minded devotion to truth, to awakening, to knowing himself fully. And in the last, in, in, in the last days of his, uh, his um, life, the last thing he was supposed to have said to his uh, students and disciples, he said, all things in this world are subject to change, are impermanent, are transient. Everything that you will ever meet is impermanent, including this body, including myself. Work out your salvation with diligence. Work out your liberation with diligence. So I find those words very um, uh, uh, inspiring in a way. And also it's a challenge. Work out your liberation. Don't just sit on the couch waiting for it to happen. And there's stories of um, various uh, uh, meditators and practitioners throughout the ages who've applied this kind of effort uh, and attained beautiful states of being and, and awakening. And I think of, even in, in contemporary times, I think of the Dalai Lama, which was such an amazing uh, symbol of what's possible in this life in terms of uh, the capacity for compassion, for wisdom, for clarity, for kindness, for patience. And he gets up about four in the morning, every morning. He's got a busy schedule meeting people and dignitaries and um, holding political office and religious office and whatnot. And he still gets up about four in the morning, does four hours of practice before he meets with anybody. I regard that as incredibly impressive. <laughs> And he's done that for the last probably 60 years. You know, he, hasn't, he, di- he didn't just become an amazing human being <laughs> by wearing some nice maroon robes, you know, and some fancy malas and whatever else he's, you know, trinkets he's wearing. No, he came about through practice, through study, through perseverance, through cultivating compassion, patience in these meditation practices. So we all have that potential. You know, we, we, we become what we do we are what we do. So what do we do with our lives and our energy and, our, and, and how do we practice, how do we cultivate those qualities? One of my favorite stories is of this Tibetan teacher, Shabkar Rinpoche, who was, uh, lived in the 18th century, who was renowned for being particularly zealous in his meditation. And he would go uh, to this, um, this, this island to practice He'd take a sack of uh, barley flour, which is what he survived on through the year, and he would cross, the, uh, cross over the lake to this island in winter when the lake was frozen. And then um, come spring and summer, the, the lake would, the ice would melt. So he was 
stuck on the island uh, until the next winter, when the when the when the, the, the frost would come and he would be able to go back across the lake to get more food. So um, and he just stayed on the island, practiced, did that for many years. And I regard that as again very inspiring to. You know, it's like locking yourself in a cave and someone comes back a year later saying, oh, yeah, here's the key. Yeah. So, um, you know, there are many ways to practice. We don't have to go off to an island to do that in the, in the uh, Himalayan plateau, but uh, to look at our lives and say, well, you know, how much time do I actually devote to, to my awakening, to, my, to the cultivation of the heart, of my mind, of the qualities, to get to know myself? Yeah. So this quality of virya, which literally means vigor or energy, or it's, it's, it's a particular kind of energy. It's energy in pursuit of the good, energy in pursuit of our own well-being and awakening. And why do we need this effort? Why do we need to apply effort? If you haven't noticed already, the habits of our mind and our egoic tendencies are pretty strong and tenacious. You noticed how strong the mind is, how, the, how strong the thinking is, how strong the reactive tendencies. Sometimes we may have worked on something for years and it feels like we've completely resolved it. And then we go back home <laughs> and back it comes again. <laughs> or whatever particular situation is challenging for us. So uh, I want to read this um, piece by Portia Nelson. Some of you will know this, called The Autobiography in Five Short Chapters. And it talks about, and it's really speaking to um, the, uh, the habits and tendencies of mind, which really uh, are very deep-rooted and require a lot of attention. So it goes like this. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault, and it takes forever to find a way out. Chapter 2. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place. But it isn't my fault. It takes, still takes a long time to get out. Chapter 3. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault. I get out immediately. Sound familiar? Chapter 4. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Yay! Chapter 5. I walk down a different street. (laughs) Success. So, um, you know, it's a great metaphor for life, isn't it? Great metaphor for our all the different ways that we just go into the same ruts, the same grooves, the same patterns, the same tendencies. And then as we become more mindful, become more present, we start to see, oh, look what I'm doing. I'm going down that same avenue. I'm going down that same path. Oh, but it's so strong, I, keep, I, I, I can't seem to resist going down there. And it's still juicy for some reason. It's still, I still think it's going to make me happy if I have that fifth Haagen-Dazs ice cream. I'm still, you know, looking for something that, and then we, we, as we become more present, we start to see, oh, this is really not helpful. This is actually painful to keep going down these roads. And at some point we go, oh, I actually have some choice in the matter. I have some awareness. I have some presence in mind. Oh, 
oh, there's a different street, oh, there's a whole city available over here, you know. So that's our life, but it takes patience, it takes kindness. Rather, you know, and usually what we do is why I'm teaching this workshop on inner critic in chapter three, I can't believe I'm still in this hell, I can't believe I've walked down the same street, what are you, what's wrong with you? Everybody else isn't walking down the hole, you're the only one walking down the hole. Sound familiar? So patience, kindness, compassion, and, and, and persistence is where the effort comes in, the persistence. Oh yeah, it's in every day, every day life will keep challenging us, will keep pushing us, keep tempting us, keep working us in some way. Our relationships, our children, our parents, our work, something. And then chapter six, for those of you who are more in the sort of social activist orientation, you walk down the same street, there's a hole in the sidewalk, and you fill it in. That's the compassion in action. And then the Buddhas who walk down the same street, chapter seven, they actually unfill the hole because they see it's really helpful for you to keep falling in the hole to see it's a great teaching. So, in the chapter eight, the activists and the Buddha working it out, you know, <laughs> it goes, it goes on. <laughs> Anyhow, so um, I wanted to read, this is, from, this is from The Onion, for those of you who know The Onion. So this is about the, um, uh, it's called Monk Gloats Over Yoga Championship. Em- Employing the brash style that brought him to prominence, Sri Dananajai Bikram won the fifth annual World Yogi Championship yesterday. Saturday with a world record total. I am the serenest, Bikram shouted to the estimated 20,000 yoga fans while vigorously pumping his fists. No one is serener than Sri Dananajai Bikram. I am the greatest monk of all time. Bikram averaged 1.89 breaths a minute during the two-hour competition, nearly 0.3 fewer than his nearest competitor, two-time champion Sri Salil the Hammer Gupta. The, the, the heavily favored Gupta was upset after the loss. I should be able to beat that guy with one long tide, Gupta said. I'm beside myself right now, and I don't mean trans-bodily. Before the Bhutan meet, Bikram had never placed better than, any, than fourth in any competition. Many said he had forsaken religious training for the celebrity status according, accorded to him by his Bhutan win, endorsing Nike's new line of prayer mats and reportedly dating the Hindu goddess Shakti. But his performance last weekend will regain for him the number one computer ranking and earn him new respect as well as for his coach, Mahabandi Vasti, the controversial guru. My special training for Bikram of one supercharged, carbo-loaded grain of rice per day was essential to his win. <laughs> Anyhow, so there's different kinds of effort and that is not one of them. So, and then we just have the sort of ordinary, everyday human uh, inertia. You know, that, you know, you wake up in the morning and you've sort of going, you know, you committed yourself to meditating every day and the alarm goes off and then you hit the snooze button <laughs> and then you hit the snooze button and then you hit the snooze button, you know, just that the, the effort it takes, even when the effort it took probably to get here tonight. Should I go? Should I not go? I could go watch a movie. I could just stay home. I could you know, take a little effort to get up from our usual, slightly inertia-filled state. Yeah? 
I was at, I was at a yoga uh, uh, conference this weekend uh, up in the mountains, and one teacher said, you know, if we ask the body what it would like to do in terms of yoga practice, it would be various forms of shavasana. <laughs> shavasana is the, is the corpse resting pose. Maybe shoulder shavasana and legs, you know, because the body just likes to sort of rest and be at ease, you know, most of the time. So, or we might have the thought, you know, I'll meditate tomorrow, or, you know, when I retire, I'll really commit myself to practice, or when I'm on holiday, I'll do some meditation, you know. So, or we work so much with a critic, and we're tired of our critic saying, you know, get up in the morning, you should meditate, you should be a better person, a better meditator. We go, no, I'm going to be kind to myself, and I'm just going to skip meditation today. I'm going to be really nice and love myself and give myself a break. So... I remember when I first started practicing, I was in London, uh, I was 19, I was a punk rocker and a lot of energy, but not exactly for meditation. I was doing other things as you do when you're in college. And um, I started meditating, uh, I was in this cold, it was this old abandoned Victorian house and it was cold and I'd sit in front of this four bar fire and I'd have my hot cup of tea and I'd have a sip about every minute. That was my idea of balanced effort. Meditate a little, cup of tea, you know, I'm English, you know, cup of tea, meditate a little, cup of tea. And over time, it's like, oh, actually, this is, feels really good. I don't need to go out partying so late because I actually enjoy the meditation in the morning. And notice how my life started changing and the effort started coming more naturally because I was actually being really energized and inspired and rejuvenated by the practice. So sometimes the effort comes from, from intention from knowing something's a good idea. Sometimes it comes from the fruit of our experience. And we see, oh, this really makes a difference. If I practice being generous in my life, I feel more generous. And that feels really positive. If I practice being patient, if I practice patience, looking at all the ways I'm impatient and how painful that is to be impatient when I'm standing in line at the bank or in the grocery store, what happens? We start to get in touch with a little more patience, which of course is a much happier state of mind. So often our energy for our, our practice is supported by seeing the fruits of our practice. And I, I practice in meditation in the morning because I know how much it supports my day. If I don't practice in the morning, I feel a little more raggedy around the edges. So it helps me get up in the morning. I noticed when I was backpacking uh, these last few days, um, it was a great place to practice uh, balanced effort. You know, I wanted to get to the top of the mountain because that's where my campsite was, and I was carrying a heavy load. I was carrying most of my friend's load. And, but I couldn't race up there because if I raced up there, I'd just exhaust myself. And so it was just, just knowing how to walk and hike steadily. You know? So it's the same with our practice. We sometimes feel impatience or a sense of urgency, but we actually can't rush the process. And the body knows this. The body has a natural rhythm and timing and understanding of pacing. The mind often is, you know, we're seven steps ahead of ourselves. I want the result now. You know? So we think about what it would be like when we get there versus actually being where we are. So and as I was trying to mention in the, in the meditation that you know, in our culture, we have a very limited, I think, uh, idea or understanding about 
effort and energy. You know, there's a lot of, you know, the, in culture, I think America is a very uh, dynamic, but also a very willful culture and very goal-oriented. And there's a lot of striving and imbalance of energy because it's not coming from a place of balance or ease or relaxation. It's coming from a place of grasping. And so we, we, we go from these polar opposites, from trying and over, over-willing and, and stressing and getting tight, and then, we, and then at the end of the day we crash, we zone out. Right? People do it and numb out with TV or alcohol or whatever it is. Anybody notice those swings? So when we come to meditate, we're either like really over-caffeinated or we're like this. You know? How many of you would like this in the meditation? I think I'm meditating. I think I'm meditating. It feels really good. I'm getting a good neck workout here. <clears throat> so this is uh, from Thoreau when he was uh, staying at the pond, Walden Pond, for a couple of years. Um, he uh, wrote an addendum to, to, to Walden. He wrote, There was a time when I could not afford to sacrifice the bloom of the present moment to any work, whether of the head or the hand. I love a broad margin to my life. Sometimes, in a summer morning, having taken my accustomed bath, I sat in my sunny doorway from sunrise till noon, wrapped in a reverie amidst the pines and hickories, in undisturbed solitude and stillness, while the birds sang around or flitted noiseless through the house, until by the sun falling in at my west window, or the noise of some traveler's wagon on the distant highway, I was reminded of the lapse of time. I grew in those seasons like corn in the night. I grew in those seasons like corn in the night, and they were far better than any work of the hands would have been. They were not time subtracted from my life, but so much over and above my usual allowance. I realize what they mean in the Orient by contemplation and the forsaking of works. So, that's another view on wise effort. So, so you know that, that, that line, I grew in those times like corn in the night. Yeah? So sometimes for, for many of us, wise effort and energy means actually pausing, slowing down, coming to stillness, having space, having quiet that that is also a very profound doorway to deepening, to opening, to clarity. Yeah. So, um, so to see, to, to, to know, you know, practice tells us, our mindfulness tells us uh, how to be in balance. When, when, is, when, is a play, when it's appropriate to apply effort and zeal, and when it's appropriate to actually pause, to take an out-breath, to breathe, to slow down, to be still, just like in meditation. I can feel the room relaxing. It's like, oh yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> a breath, a pause, an out breath. Thank you. Yeah. So notice as, you, as you're hearing this, you know, and I'm giving these different vantage points on, 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 on effort and energy, where where you lean, where you're in balance, where, what, what's more supportive for you. And then to reflect where, the, where do you put most of your energy in your life? Where does your life force go to? You know? For many of us, it's our work. We put a lot of energy into work. 
maybe into our families, into raising children or looking after elder relatives, parents. Maybe it's into making money. Uh, maybe it's study. Uh, maybe it's in you know, physical activity, sports, fun, play. Yes, and, and, and then to think, well, and how much energy goes into my spiritual practice, my, 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 my efforts towards my own awakening? Yeah. You did a little pie chart, you know, <laughs> and you worked out, you know, and then, you know, a big chunk is work for most of us. And then family and relationship and there's a little thin sliver that says meditation. <laughs> yeah. That's why we need to make our whole lives our practice, to make our whole lives the vehicle for our awakening, just as the body is a vehicle for awakening. Yeah, to stay in our bodies, stay in our hearts, to stay in our lives with intention, with mindfulness. So then it's not just, oh, I've done my 20 minutes on the cushion and then, you know, I do my day. Well, that's great, you're doing 20 minutes on the cushion, but what about the other 16 and a half hours? You know? <coughs> this is from Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's a wonderful... Buddhist teacher and translator, he said, he writes, the starting point of the journey is the mind that's confused, afflicted, and deluded. The goal is the liberated mind, purified and illuminated by wisdom. What comes in between is life and the unremitting effort to transform the mind into the liberated mind and heart. The work of self-cultivation is not easy. There is no one who can do it for us. But it's not impossible. The Buddha and his many students provide the living proof that the task is not beyond our reach. So I want to say a little about a specific teaching um, that the Buddha gave on wise effort, which speaks to this this overall uh, teaching on, on, on energy in pursuit of our own awakening. Um, and it's called the four right efforts, different aspects of effort. And the, the four right efforts are cultivating wholesome, beautiful states of mind and heart that support our journey, maintaining those qualities and states so they don't fade, don't disappear, letting go of things that interfere that are, that, are, that are painful and difficult, that don't support our own awakening, and uh, avoiding those things from arising again. So, very simple, very practical, um, but not necessarily something that we might think about so consciously. And it, I find it helpful to put it into this context to take a look at our lives and to see, well, you know, where am I cultivating and supporting these beautiful states of mind and heart to be present? And how am I working with the, the, the things that cause me suffering? How am I learning to understand and release them? So I'm going to read a poem uh, that sort of speaks to these two tendencies. Um, uh, it's called Inner Currents. It's something I wrote last year. There lay, there lay two currents in this tender body. One wakes me early, somewhat aggressively, with clipboard in hand, an arm-long to-do list, and with cracks of the whip, 
pushing and forcing and urging me to get going and start doing. Some mornings I admit I jump to his drumbeat and feel a sense of pride at just how much I get done. But it leaves me with a trace of hollowness and wondering what exactly was the point of all that busyness. While the morning fog rolls down hillsides right to my doorstep, and oak leaves glisten wet from last night's rain, are barely noticed in the flurry. Birdsong sweet ignored, morning sacredness missed. The other stream is quieter, so soft it's almost inaudible, waits to be invited like a canvas awaits the touch of the brush. It notices the simple things, the hum of the fridge, the sounds of rain dripping from the rooftops, and the loyal clock ticking. This tide carries a poignancy, touched by the fragility of the robin soaked in the rain, of yesterday's feelings unfelt. When I lie in the hammock of this flow, I watch the world go slowly about its way, content to sit on a garden bench and observe the mist envelop the dark woods below. Sometimes sadness comes in seeing how this receptivity is trampled, overridden by plans, and what loss a life without this delicacy. So I endeavor to tend to the quiet one lost in the flurry of being somebody and getting ahead of the life lived simply trying to survive. So we have these tendencies in us and to listen to what we pay attention to, listen to what we give strength to. As Jack often tells this story of the, the Native American uh, grandfather and his grandson, and the grandfather's teaching the, the grandson about um, these tendencies within us. And he's talking about two particular tendencies. One is sort of wild and aggressive and selfish and self-centered, and the other is more kind and benevolent and patient and gracious. And the grandfather's talking about how they're often in, in, in battle with each other and struggling with each other. And so the young, the, the grandson says, well, grandpa, what happens? I mean, who wins? You know, they're always fighting. What happens at the end? You know? And the grandpa says, well, the one that you feed is the one that wins, the one that you give attention to. So do we give attention to the, the tendencies and habits that cause qualities of kindness and patience and love to emerge, or the qualities that, that, that more focus on self-centeredness and uh, um, envy and fear or anxiety to grow. So bringing attention to wholesome, wholesome states of mind and heart. There's a lovely line from Thich Nhat Hanh where he says, um, uh, um, uh, Buddhism, Buddhism is simply a way to live well. Buddhism is simply a way to live well, a path to live well. Happiness is available. Please help yourself. So what this teaching and what much of Buddhist teaching does, it's, it says we have a choice. With aware, as we become more aware, we can see our patterns and our habits and tendencies. And we have a choice. Do I go down these ones that are more destructive and painful or ones that are more, create more peace and ease? So there are many beautiful qualities to, to develop in this life. And many of you have already developed them and know them. Your love, kindness, patience, generosity, peace, joy, benevolence, forgiveness, 
if you need more forgiveness practice, there's a day on August 7th, uh, Forgiveness Day. So, and then to, to reflect, well, what qualities do I develop in my life? Maybe there's qualities that you, that you admire in others. Sometimes that's the way we get to know these qualities is but we see someone is shining with generosity or with patience or with love for their children or for their family or whatever. So and there's another teaching that I particularly like that the Buddha talked about where he said, whatever we incline our mind, whatever we frequently ponder and dwell upon, that the mind and the heart becomes. Whatever we give attention to, same as the Native American teaching. So like I mentioned earlier about generosity, if we want to, be, if we want to have the joy of knowing what it is to be a generous person, we have to practice being generous. Yeah? So I, I, as when I first encountered Buddhism, I heard about this teaching about you know, developing positive qualities, and so I focused on generosity. And, and the, the practice I gave was to, to act on the first impulse which is always a great practice because we often have generous impulses and the mind comes in, well, I know I might need that in 10 years when I'm, you know, retired and, you know, or maybe they don't need so much money or, you know, I'm, I'm you know, and we have come all, these, all these rationalizations for not giving and, and then to go, well, what was my first, my first impulse was just to share, to give, to, to, to hand over. And it, you know, what, it, what it, it does, it frees the heart, it connects us, it's a beautiful quality. So to notice um, what supports positive qualities developing in you. you know, sometimes it's, it's very, it's very pr- simple. It's, it may be environmental. Some situations support more wholesome qualities to arise. So I was at this uh, yoga conference this weekend and uh, going to some yoga classes and teachings. And there was also a lot of music. And, um, and there was this... There was this kind of wild concert on Saturday night and there's a lot of people who were drunk and it was it was like you know it was going from doing all these beautiful opening heart opening yoga poses to this really kind of intense rock concert it's like this isn't supporting wholesome qualities to arise it's it's supporting fear and aversion and so I left uh, to noticing noticing where you place yourself you know the buddha said you know hang out with people that inspire you and support your practice because we're so deeply influenced by each other. You know, if, you, if you can't find people to, to be around that support and enliven you and make you sing to your highest, then be alone. You know, be with yourself. You know, if you can find sanguine community, like you come here because there's all these like-minded people who are supporting you in your journey and your practice, it's a beautiful thing to share in that. Keeps you on good behavior too. You stay for the whole meditation because, you know, there's a hundred people sitting here like, oh. So for me, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's making sure I have enough quiet time or spending time in nature, uh, things that really open my heart and my body, uh, and not watching, you know, my, my sort of political enemies on TV. And that I don't find that supports so many wholesome qualities or listening to them on the radio. Um, so each one of us has our own particular places where we can look at that and understand oh, what, what supports this. So the second is sustaining wholesome qualities that have already arisen to continue. 
this is also an interesting thing that we may not have reflected so much on, what actually allows these wholesome positive states to continue? So maybe we wake up in the day where we're having a particular day where we're feeling a lot of peace or calm or joy or contentment or ease or peace. And to reflect, well, what allows this to sustain itself? And to be mindful of what allows it, which is really noticing what allows it to disappear. Yeah? So we might wake up in the morning and we have the choice of, you know, we feel sort of open, spacious from sleeping. And we have the choice to either go to the meditation cushion or to our email, because our email looks much more interesting, even though it's usually distressing <laughs> and anxiety-provoking and frustrating. <laughs> and why am I still getting so much spam? And, you know, and to see, well, what choices do I make to sustain my state of mind? Not, not to say we don't do email. We have, you know, most people have to do email. But to notice what's supporting and what's not supporting. So sometimes uh, we're another another place to look is sometimes we 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 touch into into more expansive states of mind and heart that we're not so comfortable with. You know, sometimes we aspire to be joyful and happy and to be peaceful and content, but when we actually get there, sometimes they're so unfamiliar. It's like, oh no, like what do I do? I'm so ecstatic. I can't quite contain it. Let me, you know, I'll eat some ice cream, you know, or something. You know, I mean, it sounds sort of counterintuitive, but it's true that when we, when we move into an expansive place we're unfamiliar with, because we're creatures of the familiar, we go back to the familiar. So we'll do something to discharge the energy, to bring us down. Yeah, so to notice when you're in those expansive places, the tendency to go back to something smaller. So the third quality of wise effort is to um, to let go of that which is uh, unskillful, unwholesome, which basically means leading to pain and suffering. So this is from uh, W.E.B. Dubois. The most important thing is this, to be ready to give up what you are for what you might become. The most important thing is this, to be ready to give up what you are for what you might become. So what is it that we need to let go of in this life? Everything. <laughs> Thank you. Good night. I end the story. <laughs> Tick. <laughs> well, strictly speaking, I mean, yes, that's true. Everything. Um, but more specifically, what, 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 uh, <laughs> what's imperative that we give up is that which is causing pain to ourselves, to others, to the planet. Just like in, in, in the, 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 the autobiography, the tendencies of mind, the habits that cause us distress. You know, the, the faulty belief systems and ideas and thinking and constructs. You know, most spiritual teachings keep saying we don't see clearly. We don't see the world as it is. We see through our distorted conditioning, biases, perceptions, projections. 
So yes, there's many, many things that we can look at to see where we're holding on and where we're holding on that causes suffering. Yeah. So the Buddha talked about, it's one, one particular list, he talked about the five hindrances. Anybody familiar with the five hindrances? I'm sure you are. Tendencies of, of, of grasping, holding on. Anybody hold on to anything, anybody, anytime, ever? <laughs> oh, my new car, don't scratch it, please. Doesn't work, but we do it. It's a ten- deep tendency to hold on, to resist. Deep tendency to hate, to push away, to reject, to repel, to avoid. We can't really ever get away from anything. It just keeps following us around till we deal with it, till we look at it in the face. Yeah? My favorite line from Ajahn Chah, by running away from suffering, we run towards it. I'm going to not deal with my anxiety. Oh shit, there it is. <laughs> you know, it just follows us around till we, you know, we go around the block and there it is. Oh, anxiety. Oh, it's like this. It feels like this. I'm a little reluctant to use the word letting go, even though I have used the word letting go, um, because if we could let go, we would. So what's the problem? What's the, you know, is there, is there a question here? No, we let go through a process of understanding, of being with, of meeting, of being kind, of being compassionate. But we can look at those tendencies, like I was mentioning, the, the, the tendency of the critic would be a great thing for you to let go of, if you could. But if you, if you can't, then to look at it, well, to pay attention to these, these, these painful states, these thoughts and streams. Here's an example. This is from a Checklist of Feeling Pathetic, one of my favorite cartoon strips, Rhymes with Orange. It's choose somebody and compare yourself unfavorably to them. <laughs> Examine your face closely in the mirror and notice all your flaws. Relive embarrassing and awful moments that occurred years ago. It's a very popular meditation pastime. So is this one. Make a mental note of all the people you regularly disappoint, especially those who share your last name. Disregard all compliments, especially from people who supposedly love you. There's a caption of a woman. She's getting this compliment. Hey, you look great. She's saying, don't patronize me. And lastly, resign yourself to believing that from now on, this is how you will always feel. So the judging mind, the critic mind, to look at that, to see what, what baggage we're carrying around that's really not helpful, that's not useful. Yeah? So um, another thing that we can practice uh, letting go of is some of our thinking. The, the, the addiction, the compulsion to thinking. We live in a world that's, that's, that's really hooked on thinking. You know? We think a lot. This is a cartoon. Um, it says Buddhist compliment. And there's two monks, a teacher and a student. And the teacher saying to the student, I've never met anyone so thoughtless in all my life. Keep up the good work. <laughs> But as you will be happy to know, the point of meditation is not to get rid of your thoughts. The point is to come into a wise relationship with thoughts and also to see that um, part of that wise relationship is to uh, become disenchanted, actually, with the thinking process in the sense, not that the thinking process is a bad thing. It's an amazing, wonderful, creative, imaginative, beautiful, mysterious power that the brain has to, to think and create and imagine and plan. Um, 
but to see how we're lost in it and how life goes by because we're lost in our thinking mind. There's a great study came out, I think it was by Harvard, uh, Harvard um, School of Psychology or Medicine, that they uh, researched, uh, it's a huge amount of people, like 200,000 people, 20,000 people in this study uh, on daydreaming and to see how much people were daydreaming in the day. And they would, they would track them with their cell phones and they would ask them questions throughout the day, are you daydreaming and how much? And so the average person daydreams 46.9% of the day. That's a lot of daydreaming. That's like half your life. That's like, you know, I don't know, if you live to 80, that's, you know, it's a good couple of decades at least. But the interesting thing about the study is that, well, I like daydreaming. It's nice. I plan. I get to be on my sunny beach in Hawaii. And that people, without, without, uh, without a doubt, were much, un- much more unhappy after daydreaming than if they hadn't daydreamed. That was interesting because the daydreaming is about fantasizing about something that's not here. And therefore, the present moment is, is therefore less enjoyable because of the fantasy about somewhere else is better, which is a sort of classic meditation teaching. You know, it's, it, happiness is available here, not in some future moment that never actually exists. So to practice maybe letting go a little of daydreaming, you know, or the busyness. You know, we live in a world that's so busy. It's the, we're, we're hooked on busyness. And, you know, we're hooked on productivity. And yes, we're all busy lives, we've got a lot to do, and there's all blah, blah, blah. And just to look at the quality of your experience when you're busy. I once asked my teacher, because I said, you know, come on, I'm, I'm, I'm busy, I've got, you know, several jobs, and da, 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 student loans, and, and, you know, I'm going to be busy. And he said, you can, be, you can be swift without rushing. You can be efficient without being busy. So busyness is often the state of mind where we're, where we're living in time scarcity. Got so much to do, you know. So what would it be to, to move with efficiency, but without being so tight and so feeling so jammed up inside? I don't know, but ask somebody else. Apparently it's great. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't have time. <laughs> I don't have time not to be busy. Or the tendency we have to, um, to postpone happiness for some future moment. How much of our day are we thinking about, like right now, like, oh, I can't wait for this talk to be over, and then I can go and get some coffee, I can put some music on in the car, I can talk to my friends, or, you know, who knows, I get to bed, you know. We're living this, these habits of living in the future that doesn't really exist, except in this coconut. So what supports letting go for you? What supports, what are ways, you know, just maybe maybe take away one thing from this talk of what would be useful for you to look at in your life that's causing you suffering? To really come close to, understand, to feel, into, explore. See, you know, know, there's some habit, tendency that you get caught up in every day. Like, oh, let's let's really pay attention to that, really invite this in, get close to it. Oh, yeah. I notice I get caught a lot in envy. Okay, let's look at envy. What's it like to be envious? Really let yourself be envious. Feel it. Oh, what's this like? What's this about? How does this serve me? 
Or maybe it's, um, I don't have enough time and I've always got so much to do. Oh, let's look at that time scarcity, fear. What's that about? Feel it, get to know it, explore it. Because we have to bring these things. Letting go doesn't, doesn't mean that. It means, oh, what is this? Oh, I'm really anxious all the time. I got this really anxious type belly. What, what is that? Oh, I notice it's because I keep thinking these thoughts about something in the future that makes me anxious in the present. Oh, look at that. There's a relationship to my thinking and my feelings and my body. And then the more anxious I am, the more I think about the thing, and then I it just I'm in this spiral. Well, how would I look? How would I look at? How would I kind of start to dismantle that? I start to see. Oh, it's driven by my mind. Okay, maybe if I came more into the present moment and just asked myself, well, what's here right now? Oh, it's actually, huh, it's actually okay. It's the anticipation of this thing in the future. That's scary. But if I can just take a breath and be here and look around and see, oh yeah. Life is breathing and people are here and the world's not going to collapse, you know, even if they don't resolve the budget and the deficit <laughs> ceiling and all of that nonsense, which apparently they have voted on, or at least the, the House did anyway, they passed it. Um, so anyhow, so lastly, uh, preventing unwholesome states that haven't arisen from arising. That's a confusing one. Preventing unwholesome, unskillful, painful states that haven't already arisen from arising. So how would I... What the, opposite would be, uh, the opposite of that would be, let me think about how broke I am. Mm, yes, that makes me feel really afraid and crappy. Mm-hmm. That's, that would be the opposite of doing that, right? So a lot of it, we're looking at your thinking process and seeing how the thinking process leads to uh, unarisen states from, from arising, right? Brings them into being. So um, an example, I was on a teaching retreat up the hill recently, and this guy came and said, you know, I'm just, I'm just filled with lust. You know, it's a silent retreat. There's all these beautiful people, and I'm just lusting after everybody. <laughs> And I said, yeah, that happens, you know, you're a human being and you see beautiful people and lust can arise. It's a perfectly normal, healthy human experience. What, how, how is it happening? He says, well, I just keep looking at these beautiful people and I just get really turned on. I said, well, maybe if you practice not looking at everybody all the time, maybe that wouldn't arise so much. <laughs> Very simple. It's a, it's a teaching called guarding the gates of the senses. You know, if you don't want to be continually in that lustful longing place, then look at a tree. <laughs> You know, look at the beautiful grasses and flowers, you know, and come into some contentment and peace. You know, so it's very, you know, some Buddhist teachings are very behaviorally simple. It's not rocket science. So for me, it might be not checking my, you know, not checking the markets before I've meditated in the morning. You know, very anxious, silly thing to do. The list could go on, you know, it could be um, you know, Sunday morning, you're sitting having a cup of tea, quietly feeling happy, and, and then you pick up, you know, the stack of magazines and the, 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 the catalogs that have come through your door that week, and you start looking through them, and you, prior to that you're feeling very happy and content, and you start looking through, you know, um, Sundance catalog or whatever your favorite catalog is, and you go, oh, I really need that leather-bound spiral notebook with a desk and the chair and 
and suddenly you're caught in grasping and longing, and I don't have enough money, and what's the problem, and my life sucks, and, <laughs> and you were quietly having a cup of tea, you know, looking out the window. So, then, so preventing unarisen, unwholesome states from arising means to, to know what brings them into being, yeah? Whatever we incline the mind towards, that the mind becomes. So notice where you incline your mind, your intention. So basically, these teachings are saying, you know, we have a choice. And as we become more present and we see that the, this quality of effort and very of, 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 of energy becomes more effortless because we see, oh, this path, this tendency, this habit, this is causing pain. This is, this is, this is painful. This is suffering. This path over here, this makes, makes me, is, creates more peace and well-being and satisfaction, okay? Becomes more obvious. It's not so much a struggle. Oh yeah, I sit in the morning because I actually enjoy that state of being, that presence of, of alertness and clarity. So, um, so this is a, kind of an overview of the teachings on, on wise, on virya, on effort and energy, wise effort, cultivating wholesome states of mind, maintaining them, letting go of unwholesome states of mind, uh, preventing those unwholesome states from arising in the future and the present. So as I said, take one thing away from this talk. Take one thing, what would be useful to cultivate or to release or to get to know, to explore? So um, some closing comments. Uh, These talks, as you may know or may not know, at Spirit Rock, uh, they're pretty much all recorded. And they're all available on uh, Dharma Seed. Dharma Seed is a wonderful uh, online uh, Dharma teaching library. Uh, Dharma Seed, D-H-A-R-M-A Seed.org. Um, so uh, you're welcome to download those. And uh, the teachings here, the teachers who teach at Spirit Rock, we give uh, these teachings freely. We're not paid by Spirit Rock. We, we give out of the love and generosity of our hearts and love of this practice and your encouraged and invited to uh, support the teachers who teach you. So whenever you come to a teaching at Spirit Rock, there's what we call a dana basket. It's not a person who's getting all this money. Dana means generosity. And it's a way for you to support the teachers. So um, I appreciate, and all, I say that on behalf of all my colleagues who teach you, that we appreciate the donations that come for us because it allows us to continue our teaching. So lovely to be here with you all. Have a wonderful evening. Good night. Please uh, stack your chairs in the corner. Um, And then when you leave Spirit Rock, turn right out of Spirit Rock. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.